Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. How's it going? Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. Uh, This show is a proud part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network, so if ag podcasts and vlogs and blogs are your jam, check out farmruralag.com. We are getting ready to round out our series on sustainability at scale. I have really enjoyed kind of putting that sort of constraint or that focus on this podcast and getting to look at some of these stories. I noticed where there have been some gaps in the stories we're telling in in some of the aspects of agriculture that we have not done a good job of highlighting. Uh, One of those most certainly is organic. And if you know me or if you've listened to a few episodes of this podcast, you know I am not here to debate whether we should all be 100% organic or we should all be 0% organic. I think that's just a non-productive discussion. I believe agriculture and the future of agriculture will be a portfolio approach and will have multiple solutions to meet individual needs of consumers, of climates, of geographies, of economies. And it's going to take this full sort of portfolio approach uh, to make the future of agriculture successful and to meet the different needs of of all consumers involved. So I'm a little bit disappointed in the lack of content I've been able to put out about organic, and I wanted to be really selective in who we brought onto the show to discuss uh, organic agriculture. And I think we found really the perfect guest for today's episode. We have on the show John McKeon. Uh, John is Senior Manager of Organic Compliance Commission and Consolidation at Tanamira and Antle. If you're from the West Coast, I guarantee you've heard of Tanamira and Antle, and a lot of others of you will have as well. They're a very, very large grower, as well as packer and shipper of vegetables, uh, a lot of leafy greens and and other vegetables. And uh, what's interesting about them is they're not 100% organic. In fact, uh, I think he says in this interview they're, they're uh, slightly less than 10% of their production is organic. The rest is conventional. Um, but they have some really interesting reasons of why they've incorporated some organic production into to their systems. Uh, they're quite large, and of course, they're, they're sort of vertically integrated, meaning that they're responsible for a lot of the uh, the packing and shipping of the produce as well, as I said. And I just think it's a very, very fascinating episode. He's not here to convince everybody to eat organic. He's not here to convince everybody to grow organic. But I had a lot of questions about how it works. Uh, what are the regulations? What What's it really mean to be an organic grower? And how are those re- regulations? How do we come up with them? And how do we change them over time if, if they need to be changed? So anyway, John has some fascinating perspective on that. I even kind of take a detour off of our conversation and ask him a little bit about uh, his view on indoor agriculture being someone who's so vested in uh, leafy grains and outdoor agriculture. And he had a fascinating response to that as well. So I think you're going to really enjoy this. I encourage you to look at this interview through the lens of intellectual curiosity and figuring out, you know, what's this organic thing all about? Fascinating conversation. I really, really enjoyed talking to John and learning all about the inner workings and the sort of the behind the scenes of how organic agriculture works, especially at scale. John's going to start off our conversation by giving us a little bit of background about Tanamira and Antle. Tanamira and Antle is kind of a, a quintessential 
Salinas Valley grower shipper operation. They've been around in partnership. The two families, which is the company name, Tanamura and Antle, have been doing uh, business and work together since the 1940s. And the Tanamuras being the, the grower side of that equation and the Antles being the marketing and post-harvest cooling side of that relationship for a long time. And in 1982, they solidified their relationship in a partnership to bring them together as Tanamura and Antle and become a grower-shipper of row crop vegetables you know, from essentially the Salinas Valley over into the Central Valley of California and down into the desert region of uh, Southern California and Arizona. Currently, we're farming around 30,000 acres. Most of that is conventional uh, in all of those regions, and we're producing vegetable row crops, so iceberg, romaine, broccoli, cauliflower, celery, some of the standards that are traditional to the Salinas Valley here in California. Okay, and and you mentioned most of it is conventional, and and we're going to get into more of the organic stuff today about what what is the breakdown between conventional and organic of those 30,000 acres? Yeah, I would say at this moment for Tanner Antle, we're about five to 8% organic and the rest is conventional. Okay. And so you're pretty vertically integrated then it sounds like all the way from, you know, farming the ground through packaging and, and storage of, of the finished product. Yeah, that's right. We, you know, we're, the Antles are actually responsible for a lot of development of post-harvest technology in the fresh vegetable space to keep things essentially fresh and marketable and transportable across the United States. So heavy, heavy interest in that for us as a company, as well as essentially being at the forefront of vegetable row crop production. Great. And and I know your specialty and your background is in organic compliance. And uh, you've been you've been in this sort of organic agriculture space for, for quite some time. I would just love to hear some background because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what organic is and why it is. Could you just kind of give us a little bit of a high level background of organic certification? Currently in the United States, we have one regulation that is the organic standard. So when you're in the marketplace and you're buying something that's got an, a certified organic label on it, that claim is governed by the USDA. And how we got here is essentially a story that, that comes out of some of the environmental movement of the late 60s and early 70s and some of the farm crisis and energy crisis movements in the late 70s and 80s um, that got us here. So in so doing, you know, as we moved away from World War II technologies um, for, for chemistry, we, we applied those technologies to different sectors of, of industries in the United States, agriculture being one of those. And that's where we saw the development of synthetic chemical production agriculture occur. And as we got into the late 60s, we saw the impacts of some of the, the, that chemistry in our environment. Um, and what that created was a, a demand for um, products without the use of those chemicals on them, and then essentially deemed no spray and eventually organic, or those probably developed uh, alongside each other. And in the early 70s, you had the Rodale Institute, a longtime um, kind of purveyor of gardening and um, horticultural practices with through magazines and their institute create a set of voluntary standards for organic, which really kind of set the the baseline for an organic standard. 
And what happened was you had regions in the United States that were essentially adopting these organic methods, but they were all uh, kind of their own entities. The Rodale set of voluntary standards was picked up by um, uh, operation in California called California Certified Organic Farmers, and they in turn developed their own set of standards. And you had other agencies in other parts of the United States doing similar things. And what you got was organic standards that were not the same in different parts of the United States as organic essentially began to get more popular and increase in demand. There was a cry for essentially the creation of a universal standard so that a consumer would have a essentially a, an understood expectation of what they're getting when they're buying something that's labeled organic in the United States. So with that in 1990, the USDA wrote the organic foods production act which set the the standard. Um, it took 12 years for us to figure out what those what that rule would actually look like with lots of input and probably some of the most input ever from the public community to shape and craft those standards. And in 2002, the National Organic Program standard became the rule of law for organics and it was implemented. I'm sorry, that was in 2002. It was implemented, and since then. The USDA National Organic Program is essentially the regulatory framework for what is called organic in the United States. And in so doing, those individual agencies that had their own standards through the 70s, 80s, and 90s essentially became accredited by the USDA to implement the one standard that we've all agreed to. And so we maintain, or certifiers maintain that accreditation on an annual basis. Um, they're inspected by the USDA National Organic Program and, and other agencies within the USDA for governance. Essentially, what that's done is leveled the, leveled the standards so that you didn't have differences in interpretation or application of some of the common, common practices in the standard. Interesting. So, so those certifying bodies, a lot of them were around before there even was a USDA certification, and they kind of were um, not grandfathered in, but they were they were kind of... They're saying, hey, you're already doing this organic certification, continue to do it, but under these new standards. That's correct. Yeah, many of them were actually participating in the crafting of the USDA regulation through input and actually being asked to the table to help craft that standard. But ultimately, as you say, those individual standards and certifications all folded up, rolled up underneath the USDA standard. Okay. Uh, if I'm a grower here and, and I want to transition because I see I see the difference in price, let's say from or, you know certified organic to and conventional, I think you know I want to transition to organic. W- what does that look like, and w- you know what what is the difference for me as a grower to make that transition? The biggest hurdle from, again, as you point out, from the grower perspective is really the transition time. That time for transition in organics to convert ground to organic production that has had a prohibited material applied to it takes three years. So it takes a bit of planning to, one, identify ground that you may want to transition or find ground that's currently available, has essentially no prohibited, last date of prohibited material associated with it or is outside of that three-year requirement and transition that, that ground immediately into the program. But the transition time is probably the biggest factor that I hear from back from growers on in association with that is that during that transition time, you're essentially implementing organic practices 
but you're you're either not getting a return on that ground. Oftentimes, a lot of growers were, will just fallow ground for three years. Maybe they'll put a cover crop or a, a light rotation on it, or um, and let it fallow. So you're you're essentially paying rent and not getting a return there necessarily. Or you're doing things like you're you're producing a conventional what has to be sold as a conventional crop because it hasn't met the transition time, but you're using organic practices, and so your costs are a bit more when you get into organic production practices, and so it's a it's an economic relationship for growers to consider transitioning ground and getting into essentially that organic marketplace. Okay. And that, that kind of gets to a, a really, really just basic question I have, although I think it's a basic question, but it has a lot of sort of nuances and, and details with it, which is there there has to obviously be a financial incentive or advantage to growing organic. Uh, certainly some people are doing it because, you know, it fits their core beliefs and that's great. But, you know, on, on a business scale, you're running a business, especially a company like Tanner and Antle. So there's got to be a financial incentive to, to do it, I would think. If there is, why not go more organic? Is it that three-year waiting period? Or, or what's the reason why, if there's a clear financial case to be certified organic, why don't more people do it? The The primary reason is that transition time and and essentially the loss of revenue during that three-year transition is the most common refrain from a grower that that I would typically hear about transitioning organic. Time is probably uh, one of the most, one of the biggest mindset changes for someone to make that switch. So you've got to give that time for the, the transition, obviously, but the timing of how you do your production is also different in the way you're scheduling your practices and the tools that you have to use. So that the example I gave of essentially aphids, an aphid infestation occurring conventional in, the, in an organic piece of ground, where you've, in a conventional mindset, you would say, oh, my preventative sprays are due out in a couple of days and that should knock down that aphid population organically you may be may may see those aphids and say, "Oh my gosh, I've got, you know I've got an infestation happening. Uh, I got to control this immediately." But if you're paying attention to the environment around your organic production, you'll realize that you've got beneficial insects that are preying on those aphids. And if you give yourself a little bit of time, that reservoir of beneficial insects will build and start to do that control for you without you necessarily having to make that application to control that pest. Hmm. It's just a different mindset in the way you think about how you go away that go around your production practices and give yourself a little bit more time for things to develop. And that follows all the way through that that's the same thing for fertility. When you're putting down compost or pellets, you're kind of planning for the crop that's in the ground, but you're also planning for the crop that's coming after that and the one that's coming after that potentially because the release of organically available nutrients is different than the way you'd apply a 20-20-20 in the middle of a um, production of some iceberg lettuce or something and get that instant flush of nitrogen and see that boost right away. Those tools are different between the two types of production that are occurring and so you have to you have to be a bit more of a planner, and the, and in that same idea of planning is is the way you utilize your tools. In organic production, you can't go and and lay down an herbicide necessarily. Most of the herbicides that are out there 
are not really as effective of, in, of anything that's available conventionally. And so in organics, you're dependent on a lot of labor. Well, where does that labor fit into your production cycle as you're growing that one crop? So you've got to think about when your irrigations are occurring and that you can't just put an herbicide out overnight and see the controls without having to use the labor to get into the field to knock it down. You're, you actually have to think about, oh, it's, it's probably going to take me three days for a crew to get across that field of romaine hearts and get it all weeded. And that's got to fit into the overall production and timing of your, of your practices there. So not, not that growers aren't always doing that conventionally or organically, but it, again, it's kind of demonstrating that there's a different way that you've got to approach that and maybe, maybe with more of a longer lens. And now just a quick word from our Sustainability at Scale series sponsor, Marone Bio Innovations. Hey, ever heard of Marone's Bio with Bite? Marone Bio Innovations offers modern crop pest protection for the modern organic and conventional production systems. To make sure every grower using their products realize the best possible return on investment, Marone invests time and resources to thoroughly test and demonstrate the efficacy of those new state-of-the-art products. With serious trial data to back it up, you can see more and connect directly with Marone by visiting them at www.maronebio.com. That's M-A-R-R-O-N-E-B-I-O dot com. Thank you so much to Marone Bio Innovations for sponsoring this Sustainability at Scale series. I know one thing that I was really fascinated by as, as I was uh, learning a little bit about, about Tanamera Nantle is that there is an advantage in having a certain percentage of your production be in organic and a certain percentage of your production being conventional just because there's kind of logistical advantages too. Can, can you speak a little bit more about that part? Yeah, yeah, good point, Tim. That, that is, a, as we are in this marketplace here with organic and conventional, the the asks of our buyers of Tanamer Nantle products are looking for a place where they can capture an organic and a conventional order in one stop. So you get the convenience and the the efficiency and logistics and transportation rolled up into a, a operator that has an offering of a number of different items, both organically and conventionally for a, a retailer to, to choose from. There's no regulation that says organic must only be shipped with organic. It can be shipped with conventional. Is that right? That is correct. So you want to pay attention to the details when you're making, um, when you're going to make that a, a practice. So typically you, you wouldn't put conventional or non-organic product over organic product on the same palette. Essentially what you're doing is creating physical segregation or separation spaces in that logistics and transportation side of, of getting product to the storefront um, to make sure there's no perceived or actual risk of cross-contamination into the organics and, and just good practices in general. Sure. And that makes, I mean, that makes so much sense for the if I'm a grocery store owner, you know, I have more demand for organic. Uh, it makes so much more sense to have all of my current suppliers 
grow a little bit organic rather than one fully convert to organic and, you know, and fill that need. Uh, everything from, you know, weather to pest to disease to logistics to, you know, having uh, multiple sources. That I just see a, a bunch of reasons. And I, that's a, a really fascinating aspect of this that, that just makes a lot of sense. Um, if the consumer is demanding, let's say, you know, 10% of the grocery store's let us be organic. I don't know what the percentage is, just to use as an example. Why not get every grower to, to start producing 10% organic rather than one to fulfill all that need? I think that uh, that just made a lot of sense to me, and I hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah, yeah, it, and it falls to the the typical structure of the way the majority of people here in the United States get their food. And that still leaves actually a lot of room for the family grower to do a farmer's market or to have a, um, a community-supported agricultural program or other or tenants of direct marketing in agriculture that some of the organic movement um, was able to capture as it grew up. You all at Timber and Ansel are operating on, on such a in such a large scale. One question I have about organic, because a lot of people, I think, when they think of organic farming, they do think of that uh, that person at the farmer's market and, and maybe a small smaller grower, generally speaking. Is there anything uh, inherent about organic that makes it hard to scale or other than that three-year peri- waiting period, I mean? Yeah, I, I agree. There are some difficulties, but I think it actually is dependent on the type of crop you're going to you're gonna move up in, in overall acreage. I think Tanimer and Antle or row crop vegetable producers in general have picked probably one of the harder things to scale because of the requirements for in- inputs and the number of rotations you're, you're typically going to have during a, a season or a year. It puts a lot of pressure on getting things done right all the time. And organics is takes a little bit of a different mindset to get that accomplished. There's a little bit of a time factor in the production of organics that's different, obviously, than than conventional. And so your tool set is a bit different to get there. Um, and scaling that tool set up takes time. And, and I would also say that that as organic production, you know, makes its way into the future, you're getting the benefit of new technologies, new materials, and new practices coming into this as you are in non-organic agriculture as well that are essentially changing that scalability of it. But the main things that I would point to really would be the way that, say, for instance, scalability of something like pest control. It's a difficult uh, proposition. Our tool chest in organics is is definitely not the same as in, in non-organic production. And you may have a, say, you've got some spring broccoli that's got aphid on it conventionally, you have a set of tools you can use instantly uh, to get to knock down that pest population. Organically, you've got a, a mindset that says physical, cultural, biological before sprays. And in so doing, you may find that you've got a reservoir of natural hosts or natural enemies or predators within your organic system to essentially take care of those same aphids, but it takes longer for that reservoir of predators to develop during the crop cycle. Hmm. So you you have to live with a little more, you have to give yourself a little more time. You have to observe the crop production and and kind of steer away from a more calculated or programmed regimen of spray or prevention spray activities. 
And all of that leads to essentially how you utilize your resources and how much resources you're going to use to begin to scale up that entire program. I wanted to ask you just about um, kind of along similar lines with organic standards, how much are they changing and, and how do they get changed if you wanted to add or subtract something from the certified organic standard? Changes to the organic regulations typically mean a change to the law as it's written in general. So in that context, you haven't seen a whole lot of changes to the rule as written since it was implemented in, in 2002. You have a, essentially a pasture regulation that was um, a ma- change made into the regulations. Currently, more discussions about access to pasture and other things um, predominantly centered around livestock. But there's another part of the regulation that is constantly changing. And, and that has to do with the ability to produce organically in, in context to the materials that you use. Part of the organic regulation is this national list of allowed and prohibited materials. And when the rule is passed and within the rule, the creation of the National Organic Standards Board, one of their tasks is to essentially evaluate these non-organic or synthetic materials that have been determined to be necessary or needed within the organic framework to allow for continued production. And so they agreed upon essentially allowed synthetics, a number of them within the regulation. And then the job of the National Organic Standards Board and then subsequently the National Organic Program is to do a a review of these materials that all have typically have a sunset date on them, review those materials and determine whether or not an organically uh, an organic substitute for that particular material has been found and is available for use in organics. And therefore this material may no longer be needed or that that material is essential, um, still essential to organic production. And therefore that material will continue to stay on a national list. And that process happens on an annual basis, this process of essentially reviewing materials for continuance on the list or removal from the list. And then you also have the ability for anybody to essentially petition the USDA, the National Organic Program, to have a material added to that list. And that's a petition process that then goes under, goes to the National Organics um, Standards Board, where they work up essentially a, a background and information on that material and reasons why you, it should be supported or would not be supported. And they present that information to the National Organic Program, and they make a decision as to whether or not that material will be allowed ultimately. I think it's very, very interesting right now to see, in addition to being able to essentially petition for for new materials to be added, et cetera, I think the organic regulations are essentially growing up a little bit right now. And so we're close to 20 years down the road on the regulation. We are understanding what we've got right and what we may not have gotten totally right within the rules themselves. And you've got changes in the way agriculture is being produced right now. And so livestock um, certainly has come to the forefront of that discussion under organic regulations. And most recently, you can see the discussion revolved around 
container production or greenhouse production within organics. And that is poised to set off another round of conversations as to whether or not that should be in the regulation or shouldn't be. It also kind of ties into um, the intent of the regulation um, versus essentially the use of organically approved materials to, to grow a crop within a controlled environment. So those discussions, I think, will be ongoing, and, and people will have to make those determinations about what is organic versus bigger questions about sustainability of, of agricultural production. From Tanamira and Antel's perspective and other large uh, vegetable growers, is there any concern about uh, indoor ag and, and kind of vertical farming? Because it seems like all of this indoor ag, they're kind of limited to just these type of leafy greens and vegetable type products. Is that a concern that it could take over market share long term? It certainly caught everybody's attention. Um, and I think a lot of people are paying close attention to that space. But the the argument is currently that there's still not enough of it in production to have an impact and whether or not there's a future there that says that conversion into container or greenhouse space production increases, you know, exponentially or at a certain point it kind of taps itself out based on the the crops it's being that it's able to produce. Tanamer and Antle, we ourselves have greenhouse operations, non-organic greenhouse operations um, in Tennessee, and we put that in place in particular so that we could reach the East Coast market with fresher produce at a, at a more economical scale for us rather than shipping everything we ship from out here in Salinas. So we've kind of got both feet in the water on, on this issue in general. We're both a practicer of it and see the value in it, as well as trying to make sure that it doesn't completely overshadow our our normal in-field production. It's intriguing. For me, it speaks a lot to efficiencies. Mm-hmm. It's very efficiency, efficient with space. It's efficient with its nutrient cycling. I think it's got a, a something, a role to play in our definition of sustainability organically that argument is still out there which is you know organic production starts in the soil what happens when you don't have soil for your organic production and that's a question that a lot of the organic community is really trying to define for themselves right now john we we got an audience here that that there's a fair amount of producers uh, but also people who work in agribusiness or in academia or are entrepreneurial or or investor types Uh, either way we're all consumers just in closing here what's What's something you wish more people understood, either on the production side or the consumption side, about organic agriculture? I'm not sure that there's a depth of understanding of the kind of the detailed systems approach that organic farming requires. It requires a lot of detailed work and effort. Not that non-organic doesn't. To simply just see organics as a healthy option in the, in the marketplace, I don't think tells the whole story. Of, of why it's here and how it got here. And that falls back on kind of the story of organics, which was, it was born out of concern for the environment and growers and producers being stewards of the land, being caretakers of the land and having an understanding of what their daily practices do uh, to that ground that they care a lot about, whether you're organic or non-organic. I think understanding the 
that there's a lot more that's going into it than just a health claim. Well, John McKeon, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate this. If somebody wants to follow up with you and ask more questions, what's a good way for them to reach out to you? Are you on like Twitter or anything? I'm not on Twitter. I'm happy to give out my email address. Best way to get in touch with me is John McKeon at taproduce.com. Great. John, I really appreciate the time today. This has been very, very interesting. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. Hey, I hope, uh, like me, you're leaving here with a better understanding of organic regulations and practices and just kind of what the thinking looks like for both an organic producer and a conventional producer, because uh, John actually works with both. So appreciate him being on the show. Really enjoyed that conversation. If there's anything I didn't ask John, please go to speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag. Leave me a voicemail. Just introduce yourself and leave your question. I'd be happy to get that to John, and then we will include it on a future episode of Follow Up Friday, uh, which are mini episodes, five minutes or less, that I'll release every Friday. If you're subscribed, you'll get that. Uh, If you're not subscribed, please do on your favorite podcast player. Uh, It'll be every Friday. I promise to keep them less than five minutes, and it will be from you, uh, the listeners of the show, a question or comment and the response from the guest. Or if you're commenting to me, I will respond against myself. Anyway, I'm excited about that. I think it'll be a chance to fill in some gaps that maybe I leave in these episodes and for you to be a part of the show. We will be back next week with more sustainability at scale. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com. That's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.